This morning's reading from the New Testament is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, them from their, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Thank you, Allison, for reading. You know, Jesus, in his last words before he leaves, after he's been resurrected and before he leaves to go up to be with the Father, to be ascended, these are his last words. He says, you will be my witnesses. He appears one more time in the book of Acts in bodily form to Paul. And he says to Paul, you are going to be my, my witness. You're going to go out and, and make disciples of the Gentiles. You're going to be my chosen instrument, he says. You're going to go to the nations. And Paul, of course, writes much of our New Testament because of that commission that Jesus gave him. You will be my witnesses. You will be my chosen instrument. Friends, the, this week we come to the fourth out of our four G's, the things that CORE is founded on. We've, we've looked at grace for a couple of weeks. We looked at grow for a couple of weeks. The last two weeks, uh, Josh and Austin led us through looking at groups, and we're going to end this series, and, and as you've heard from, from more people than just me during this series, uh, Austin and I will finish this out looking at go this week and next week. After that, we'll be... Uh, just so you have an idea of where we're going, kind of moving into the Easter season. Uh, we will be uh, taking a few weeks to look directly at Easter. And then I'm very excited about, it may seem weird to say I'm excited about when you hear what the series will be on, uh, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments uh, after the Easter series. Not something that you may typically get excited about. I've been working on this series, and I think it's going to be 
uh, uh, really wonderful to spend time in the Ten Commandments that God gives uh, and how they actually, I think, lead us to, to life and lead us to see Jesus and lead us to, to live in the new life that he's given us. So, so I'm very excited about that series and hopefully you can get about excited about the Ten Commandments with me uh, in a few weeks here. Uh, but this morning, we'll continue in this series looking at Go. Now, if we know we're called to go, friends, then we ought to have a vision of why we're going and where we're going. If we know we're called to be witnesses, then we ought to know what that role entails. And I want to, there's so much that the Bible says about go. There's so much uh, that the Bible says about our mission as believers. But I want to specifically look at just one thing this morning, one thing, and that is that our going is to be radically God-centered. Now, it may seem obvious. Our going is to be radically God-centered. But I think in our culture, there's a lot of pressure that subtly push back, pushes back. There's kind of this latent idea that pushes back on our going being God-centered. We tend to separate out our going from our worship of God. We tend to separate out our love of God from our love of neighbor. I think there's this pervasive idea that that the church needs to stop focusing so much on God and get out there and do something. That the church needs to, to keep our faith to ourselves and not spend so much time pushing our faith on other people, but instead just help. That we should stop spending so much time praying and go to people. Now, the church certainly has room for growth in many of these areas. We have suffered at times and in many ways from a a wrongful exclusivism, sometimes hunkering down, only spending time in worship and never going out to people, and that's wrong, and, and I want you to see why that's wrong this morning. But at the same time, we also have this strong push, this strong uh, sort of latent pressure to take God out of our going, to go and to serve other people, to be kind to other people, to be loving to other people, which are all good things, but keep that religion private, keep that relationship with Jesus to yourself. And I want, you to show, I want to show you this morning why throughout the Bible, I think that's, that's completely against what the Bible says about our going, what the Bible says about our mission, but I want to show it to you in a, in a place that, that the Bible doesn't tell us that in so many words, but it, but it shows us this idea. And it's in the book of Revelation. That's where we're going to spend time this morning, book of Revelation. Revelation is a wonderful book. Something I love about Revelation is that you can sum it up in two words. Jesus wins, as you've probably heard before. And at the same time, it is so rich. It is, as you, as you move through it, 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 and it's so foreign to us. It's so foreign to us because it's a different kind of literature than what we're used to reading. At some point, I'd love to preach through it. It's, it, it there's so much in there because it's written to a church that's persecuted, and that's in a world where they're the, the vast minority, and, and, and John is teaching them how to live in that world in light of the fact that Jesus reigns. 
And there's so much in it that's wonderful, that's deep. But, but this, this morning we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll read the chapter. Lord God, we are here to worship you. We've worshipped you in our singing. We'll worship you as we look at your word and hear from you. We'll worship you in taking communion in receiving your grace. Lord, it's all about you. We pray that you would help us to come to your word and to, and to be shaped by it, by your spirit, to hear your words, be convicted by them, and to go out as people who continue to be changed by you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, this is God's word in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw, this is John, I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll Or to look into it, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What more can I say? I will try to say a few things, but that passage in and of itself is enough. I do want to spend a few moments working through this passage. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to to work through the passage, look at some of the, the pieces in the passage, and then I want to spend a few minutes looking at some specific ways that I believe that this passage shapes us for God-centered going. Ways that this passage specifically applies to our going as a local church. 
So let's begin by, by moving through the passage and just observing what's here. We won't be able to hit everything, obviously, but just we're going to hit some of the main points that John is bringing out. First of all, we see a scroll. We see a scroll, and in the context of the ancient world, the king holding uh, in his right hand a scroll, this is a kingly decree. This is a decree of the sovereign king. And in chapter 4, which is really a part of this same scene, we've just seen God worshipped on his throne in all power and all dominion being given to him. And now he's holding a decree in his hand, a kingly decree. And from the context, I believe it becomes clear that this decree is not just a decree, it's a plan of God's redemption. It's his plan for the salvation that he brings about. And it's written on one side, normally a scroll is written just on one side, but it's here written not only on one side, but on both sides. This plan is final, it's complete, it's full. Just a note about all this imagery. This is how the book of Revelation is. If you've ever read it, there's there's not even as much in this chapter as in most chapters in Revelation. There's imagery all over the place. This imagery is not meant to be, uh, most of the time, uh, uh, literal in, in the sense that later when we see the lamb standing, Jesus is not actually a lamb. He's not actually literally a lamb. It's, it's imagery that's called apocalyptic imagery that's, that's designed to show us truths about God and about the world through the vehicle of this imagery. And, and, and by the way, if you're confused when you read Revelation, well, you're in good company. All of us are. Uh, a first century Jewish person reading this, or or a person in any of the churches reading this who are familiar with their Old Testament, understood better than we do because they're familiar with some of the imagery John is using, and they're familiar with their Old Testament, which John is just constantly pulling into Revelation. So just a note about reading Revelation when you read through it. The more familiar we get with our Old Testaments, the more we're going to understand Revelation. The better we know our Old Testaments, the better we understand what John is doing in Revelation, but it takes a a lot of work. But again, that message is clear. Jesus wins throughout. It's simple and it's full. So the scroll is written on both sides. It's a complete plan. Then I want you to notice the question, which is really at the center of this passage. Who is worthy to open the scroll? What does it mean to open the scroll? To open the scroll is to enact the plan. It's to begin the plan. It's to set the plan in motion, to set the plan forth. And it says, who is worthy to enact this plan, to open the scroll? And and the angel cries out, who is worthy? And remember, we're in the midst of all of these heavenly creatures that have been described in chapter 4 and 5, these these, uh, angelic, mighty creatures that Don, in the book twice, will fall down before and try to worship. And they'll say, no, get up. Don't worship anybody but God. That's the the power of these creatures, and and none of them are worthy to open the scroll. Because the answer in response to that question is silence, utter silence. And John weeps. I imagine we would all like to have a written out plan of what God is going to do in our lives. It'd be great sometimes, right? Take away some of the unknown. 
John weeps when he finds out that no one can open the scroll. Why does he weep? Why is it not just disappointment? Why does he, why does he weep? And I want to suggest two reasons why he weeps. One reason that John weeps is because he realizes that this isn't just a plan of future events. This is God's entire salvation work. This is everything that God has planned to do to save his people. What we've seen in the Old Testament as we read through Exodus, that he cares about his people enough to take down the most powerful king and display his glory. That he cares about his people so much that he will come and save them to the ends of the earth and no one can open the plan. He weeps because he knows what's in the plan. But he also weeps because he knows that the church around him, the church that is, again, a church that's in the vast minority in its culture in terms of its beliefs, the, the, a church that, that, that is persecuted already in many ways and will undergo more and more persecution in the years to come, that if God's salvation plan can't be opened, that, that the thing that they've given their entire lives for the thing that John has given up everything for in following Jesus and, and, and all of his friends have been killed, or many of them, and now he's in exile on an island, that it was all for nothing, that there is no hope. There's no hope if the plane can't be opened. There's no hope if God's salvation can't be put into motion. He weeps because he realizes without God's redemption, all hope is lost. John doesn't have a plan B for his life. You know, one of the most hopeless and sad experiences of my life that I can remember, or or not really of my life, but but, but that I observed in in the friend of another, or or one of my friends uh, and and a co-worker, um, a particular friend and co-worker in Memphis who I'd gotten to know a little bit, I wasn't extremely close with, but, but she found out that she had cancer. And, and it was, she was about mid-30s. She was the mother of two children, uh, elementary and middle school aged. Uh, and she had a husband. And she found out she had cancer, and it progressed remarkably quickly. And I remember going one Saturday morning to an open house to say goodbye, where she invited friends and coworkers over, Everybody basically except for her family and very closest friends who would continue to get time with her and basically said, this is the last time I'm going to see you because the doctors give, have given me a few weeks. And the cancer progressed. And a few weeks later, I was at a memorial service and the room was full of people weeping. This was one of the nicest, kindest people that you will ever meet. And yet, at the memorial service, people tried to find hopeful things to say, and I remember sitting there and just feeling throughout that time, the memorial service, and all these, these platitudes, all these memories that were shared, there was no hope. There was no hope. I remember driving home, both from the open house and the funeral service, crying both times, because not, not only because of the loss of, of a friend, a co-worker, someone I had gotten to know, but also because of the utter hopelessness 
what, what do you do? What, what do you look to in a situation like that? Platitudes and nice pithy statements and quotes and, 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 and memories, they do something for us. They give us some psychological help. But they don't give us actual hope. John realizes that no, no human solution is big enough to be able to give us actual substantive hope. So when no one is wor- worthy to open the seal, no one is, is worthy to, to enact this plan, no human being can do it, no angel can do it, he weeps because there is no hope. There's no hope. The hope of the Bible, friends, is not platitudes. It's not, you can do it, spirituality. It's not, everything's going to be okay or keep your head up. This is the stuff that sells. This is the, this, this is the, the famous preachers that, that we watch on YouTube or other things. They, they get big audiences. Not all of them, but many of them are giving us platitudes. Things to feel a little bit better, human-centered solutions may help us in the short term, may give us a little bit of a psychological salve, but they don't provide substantive hope. There's silence in heaven, and no one can open the seal, but look at what happens next. Look with me at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John now realizes that there's one who is worthy. But I want you to notice how he realizes it. This is amazing. How does he realize that there's one who's worthy? He hears something and then he sees something. Okay, he hears something and he sees something. This happens throughout the book of Revelation, by the way. You'll see it several different times. John hears something and then he sees something that helps him realize and interpret what he's just heard. He hears that the lion of the tribe of, of Judah has conquered. He, reali- he hears these words about conquering, about, about strength, about might, power. Someone who wins, who brings victory. And then he turns and he sees. And what does he see? He sees a lamb that was slain. He sees the exact opposite image of what he just heard. He just heard the, the, the lion who conquers and tears its prey apart, and then he turns and he sees someone who's been torn apart, helpless. Which one is true? John realizes is that, that both are true, that Jesus is the conqueror, He's the victor. But how is he the victor? He's the victor because he gave him life. He's the victor because he was conquered. It was only in being conquered that Jesus conquered and has victory. And he's standing there. John recognizes that he's resurrected. A lamb that's been slain wouldn't be standing. He's been resurrected. But the emphasis is here not on his victory in his resurrection, but his victory in his actual death. That's what John focuses on. It's in his being slain. The resurrection 
is so deeply important for Christianity and, and, and is where victory happens as well. But in Christ's actual laying himself down, there is also victory. Standing as though it had been slain. I don't like that translation. Usually, you know, the translation is really, really wonderful in the English. It's not as though it had been slain, as if, it, 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 yeah, as, as if it's an illusion or something. It's as slain, having been slain is the word, that he has been slain truly, and it continues to have significance. Okay, so he's, he's worthy. And then in verses 9 and 10, i got to keep moving. They sing a new song. They sing a new song to the lamb who was slain, and they say he's worthy because he was slain. Friends, a sacrifice had to be made. Forgiveness had to be made possible in light of a just judge who hates sin, who hates the ways that we have rebelled against him. Forgiveness had to be made possible, and the only way that it was made possible was through this sacrifice, this sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and it says specifically, they, they praise him that he was slain, and by his blood he ransomed people for God. He ransomed, he bought People for God, he bought you back. He bought me back. And friends, if you're here this morning and you, and you don't know and trust in Jesus Christ, who is this lion on the throne, ruler over all, and also a lamb who has been slain, he's given himself for you. He's not a tyrant. He's given everything on your behalf. If you don't know him, Friends, he can ransom you with his blood. He can free you with his blood. There is nothing that can keep him from being able to free you. You put your trust in him. He provides freedom. He has bought you. His sacrifice is enough. It says this, he's bought people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And again, this is language that will show up over and over and over again in Revelation. In Revelation 7, again, uh, John will say, from all tribes, peoples, languages, nations, standing before the throne, there were people. In Revelation 14, he'll say again, uh, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Revelation 15, he'll say once again, all nations will come to you and worship you. In Revelation 21, he'll say, by the light that God provides, all the nations will walk, the kings of the earth. And then again in Revelation 22, that God, the tree of life gives healing to the nations. God cares about the nations, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That everywhere we go, there are people ransomed for Christ. There's no place we could go that Christ has not bought some for himself. He's made them a kingdom and priests, and we don't have time to even get into that rich language. But there's a crescendo at the end of the chapter where at the end of the age, John sees these thousands and thousands of angels worshiping, and then he sees all of creation, every creature worshiping the king. If you read the rest of the book of Revelation, it's clear that not every creature is doing that willingly. Friends, the call is to willingly submit to the king. But every knee will bow. 
every tongue will confess. Friends, what does this mean for our going? Just a few things briefly. What does this mean for us as people who go? First, the goal of our going is the worship of God. The goal of our going is the worship of God. John Piper famously said in one of his books that missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. We don't just go because Christ commanded us to in the Great Commission, although that's a part of it. We don't just go because we want people to to escape from death and hell, although that's a part of it and an important part of it. But we go because we want people to worship, because that's what God created us for. He created us as worshiping people. The goal of missions is worship. This means that I can't and I won't let my relationship with Jesus just be a private matter that has nothing to do with my desire to love and help other people. My worship and my service of Jesus Christ will invade all parts of my life, including my service for other people, including my love to other people. Okay, second, the primary actor in our going is God himself. In other words, the effectiveness of our going is utterly dependent on God. We don't actually do the work of changing people's hearts. You saw this work, uh, um, image in Revelation 5 that talked about the seven spirits. That's where it gets a little weird in Revelation 5. What's going on? Seven horns, seven spirits going out through all the earth. Well, John uses seven spirits several times, and basically what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. Seven is a number of perfection. The Holy Spirit's reign on the earth. The Holy Spirit's work in enacting the plan in the seven horns is this imagery about might and power, perfect might and power, in opposition to uh, the beast in, in uh, the book of Daniel. We don't have time to get into it, but it's, but it's basically might and power and God's Spirit going out. God's Spirit is the one who does the work. This means that I don't have to persuade somebody every time I talk to them. It means I don't have to necessarily preach at somebody or, or even give this clean gospel presentation every time I talk to them. That means I'm, I'm free to be in relationships with, with somebody, to get to know them, to, 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 to be in their life over time, to invite them in, to be hospitable, to let them be hospitable to me, to learn from them. It, it means I don't every single time have to share the gospel, but sometimes I will. Sometimes I will. I know where the ultimate hope is, and yet I trust the Spirit to do the work. I trust that the Spirit is the one who changes hearts, not my own persuasive ability. Did you notice, too, in the passage, and this is just, I, we could take a whole morning on this, but I'll just mention it, that the prayers of the people are in the presence of God right here. Did you see that in verse 8? The, the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, that your prayers are there in the presence of God in the enacting of his salvation plan? That's crazy that the God of the universe who has the salvation plan has your prayers there with him. Our prayers matter, friends. Our prayers actually matter. We are called to pray and to trust God. Third, God uses our going to bring about his plan. While God is the primary actor, he uses our going. That's 
his tool. God is like the gardener, we are the tools. One wonderful commentator, one of the best commentators on the book of Revelation says this. He says, the people of God have been redeemed from all the nations in order to bear prophetic witness to all the nations. The ultimate purpose is not that Jesus would have somebody from every nation and tribe, although he does. It's that those people would then bear witness to him so that all people might know his glory. We've been ransomed in order to proclaim to be tools in God's hands. This means that we are going to work hard to know the culture around us. This is hard work. We have to work hard to know the culture around us. I should say the cultures around us. But we're going to work even harder to know God's word as we seek to share it. We don't just focus on God's word and ignore the cultures around us. We don't just focus on the culture and, and, and ignore God's word. We do both. We work hard to do both so that we can apply God's word to those around us. So we can learn from them and yet also share the hope that we have. Friends, God will bring about his plan. And we are tools in that process. Every tribe, tribe tongue, nation, people will have those who are in heaven serving and worshiping alongside of our tribe, tongue, people, and nation, which has people in heaven worshiping and serving. Every group will be represented. The diversity of heaven is beautiful. God will do that work. We are simply tools, but we're called to be faithful tools. We're called to be faithful witnesses. Finally, the way that we go, must go, needs to be conformed to Christ. If there's one thing that's clear in this passage, it's that the way that Christ conquers is through death, as we saw. The way that Christ conquers is through sacrifice of himself. And friends, this is the way that we are called to conquer. It's through sacrifice. It's not through cultural imperialism, which the church has been so often guilty of. It's not through top-down solutions. It's not through winning arguments or winning fights. It's not through battles of of words. It's through self-sacrifice and faithful witness that remains faithful to the truth that God has given us in his word and seeks to lay our lives down for him as we witness to other people. So friends, as our church seeks to go, to be faithful to this, let us be God-centered in our going. Let us be Christ-centered in our going. Let us continue to learn to do this together, to sacrifice for our Savior and for each other. And friends, mission will end Going will one day not be a call anymore, but worship will not end. God's grace to us will not end, because we will stand forever with him, with this beautiful, wonderful, diverse body of Christ, diverse beyond what we could ever imagine, singing to the Savior. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table of communion. So that no matter how different we are, Christ has bought us by his blood. He has united us in himself. 
He has made us one in Him by His grace. And friends, week in, week out, we come and we receive His grace through His Word, but we also receive His grace when we come to the table of Christ and take these elements of the body and the blood of Jesus shed for us, given for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And though our sins are great, His mercy is greater. Friends, Paul calls us in the book of 1 Corinthians to do this as a body, giving us these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, I invite you, if you know Christ Jesus, if you are one with him, if he has saved you, if you put your trust in him to come to this table and receive this forgiveness from him as he has forgiven you and will continue to forgive you and will continue to hold you in himself.